because I work with movement, I do a lot of work with the body as the home. It's our first territory. It's the first thing that we know. At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I am Susie Stadler, an architect by profession and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older. I'm also the producer of this program, At Home on Air. For us, the meaning of being at home is twofold. First, it refers to how we can live and thrive in our home environments. And second, how we can come to feel at home with growing older in our wider communities and within ourselves. Joe Good is our guest in this episode. His lifelong work as choreographer, dancer, writer, and artistic director explores movement for and with people of different bodies and ages, pushing the boundaries of dance. Welcome, Joe. And thank you so much for your innovative and humanistic work. Thank you for having me. Joe, I was just mesmerized by your latest piece, As We Go, which you wrote and performed this summer with the Joe Good Performance Company. You created magic. You and your dancers took inspiration from the inevitable fragility of mind and body in older age to transcend the fear of aging. After five minutes into the performance, I knew that we were coming from a similar place. Delight needs to be a through line in the arc of life. Mm, I couldn't agree more. And I think that this fear of aging and even fear of dying is just a breath away from fear of living. I mean, you know, living is imperfect and complicated and fraught and troubling and difficult and we can divert our attention into I'm so afraid of getting old and fragile and incapable but on some level what we're saying is I'm afraid of living I'm afraid of meeting the moment the complexity of of my body of my environment of my culture and when we bolster the courage to meet the moment of aging, we're actually meeting life. It can be a very renewing and restoring thing to take aging on. <laughs> yes, and this is a great start into this conversation about the body as home and exploring aging. Maybe I can also ask you to read a part of the script you wrote for this performance. I'm very fond of a voice that sounds like an inner voice, a voice that sounds like you talking to yourself. And so this is a voice that comes out of the darkness. Who are you holding in your heart and in your head? 
Is there an older person you are holding? Do you touch them on the hand sometimes? Do you ask yourself, when will I become the person who needs help? It goes by fast, doesn't it? I heard this on an interview with you on the radio, and I immediately rushed home and got a ticket for the performance. It also reinforces what you just said. It's a very moving and very tender statement, Joe. Where did this come from? How did this originate? I think most people have a misconception about artists that we create every new piece out of whole cloth, and it's like an idea that bursts out of nowhere and becomes something. But the fact of it is we work from the material that's left over from the last thing that we did or something we did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And ideas resurface. I lived through the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco and lost a lot of fellow artists, a lot of dear friends and lovers and loved ones and made a lot of work about that because I couldn't understand the magnitude of it. I couldn't understand the experience of loss at such a young age. Making work about it was a way for me to kind of get closer to the concept of death and loss and diminishment of health. And I made a lot of works in that vein. Then I had to stop Mostly because I just wanted to see if I could do something else, if there was any other topic that I could possibly broach. And now I feel, as I'm older, I'm really wanting to come back to that topic. I'm really wanting to, again, think about how are we when we're meek, when we're fragile, when we're broken, when we're on our way out? How are we? How do we do that? How do we do that with grace and with joy and without so much fear. And of course, I don't have any of those answers, but I think they're really interesting questions and they keep me leaning in with my artistic team. I'd like to name them Patricia West and Damara Ganley, who are my thought partners in a lot of work that we do at the company. And we decided it was time post-COVID, it was time to lean back into that territory. I didn't want to make a piece about grief specifically, been there, done that. I didn't want to make a piece about, oh, woe is me, because it's actually quite the opposite is what I'm trying to look for. And when I came up with the concept of, oh, this is about passage, this is about going somewhere as we go. Once we came up with the title, I kind of knew what we were working on, and that, that really helped me. It's sort of a gentle title. It allows so many ways to go. Yes, yes, exactly. And this was, as you said, very collaboratively produced. Your dances are all different ages and all different bodies. Can you talk a little bit about the process of coming up with the prompts and this collaborative production and what emerged, the topics or certain scenes from your dances? Again, arrived at very collaboratively. We kind of knew the general questions that we wanted to ask, like how do we stay buoyant? How do we uncover new layers of ourselves and not just concentrate on what's falling apart? 
how do we, you know, peel the onion a little bit and see that there's still something new inside and something young, something awake. I have a dear friend who's a director of gerontology at Queen's Hospital in Hawaii. And he was a great partner. Interviewed him a couple of times as he started a hospice program there and cultural approaches to death and dying. Hawaii is a melting pot of mostly Asian cultures, but many different cultures. That led me in a certain direction where, where he really talked about tenderness and the ability to hold what is and not try to transform it, not fixing. A concept I use a lot in my class that I teach, Movement for Humans, that we don't have to fix our bodies. We just have to know them, familiarize ourselves, and befriend them. That can be a huge step towards healing and towards finding comfort and finding ease. You answered the questions perfectly, where the inspirations came and where the stories came from for as we go. And I'm glad you bridged to how the imperfections of our bodies can inspire us or can even encourage us to find occasionally delight. We tend to sort of diagnose the body and look for symptoms and look for dis-ease and the things that are broken. That's a very natural impulse, and I certainly do it. But I feel like the wiser, perhaps, approach, the more gentle approach is to say, this is my complex organism, and it's full of dimensions and full of accidental things and full of spontaneity of expression. And I don't have to diagnose it all the time. I can just hold it. I can just experience it. And maybe in that more spacious kind of holding, I might find something that I didn't even know was there, some joyous, buoyant thing as I just hold all of the complexity of my aches and pains, of my loss of memory, whatever it is that we're experiencing, there's more there. There's more there than just those things. And as we hold it, as we hold all of it, we start to be less afraid. And so I think that that's what I'm hoping for myself and for my friends who many are my age, is let's find a way to be friendly to our bodies. Let's find a way to befriend them, not just when they're good boys and girls, but when they're bad children. We still want to hold them. We still want to parent them in a way. We still want to love them. I may use the word befriend a lot, befriending the body. It hasn't taken aim at you. It's not aggressively trying to hurt you or make you miserable. It may feel that way sometimes, but that's really not what's happening. What's happening is change, and you have to sort of lie down in that change and find comfort in it in some way. Yes, and that takes courage. It does. I just think about the alternative. <laughs> I don't know that I'm a very courageous person, actually, but the alternative is not attractive to me. The alternative of hating my body and being so disappointed that I can't do what I used to do and I used to 
dance and I used to run and I used to do many things that I don't really do anymore. I could spend an awful lot of energy on that and I would feel totally justified in doing so. But where does that take me? What does that give me back except aggravation and a sense of, you know, anxiety about what's next? I encountered a neighbor the other day who's around my age, and she said that she had recently been in the hospital, but she kind of looked at me and said, at our age, it's not a question of what or if, it's just a question of when. And, you know, we kind of laughed about it. And that is one way of approaching old age, that, okay, we're just going to get sicker and sicker and more and more cranky and forgetful and all those things. While all of that may be true, if you focus on that and if you believe that that's your destiny, is to just close down and get smaller and smaller and smaller until you disappear, then that is probably what's going to happen. I'm hoping that we can find another way. Maybe this would be a good time to also talk a little bit about the scene in the performance, actually the final scene in the performance. I call it the lollipop scene, <laughs> where you are handed a lollipop. There is so much delight in this in this lollipop. You're playing an older person in the performance, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this spark. This is a scene that actually comes from my life. I know that this is going to make my sister cry, and I apologize in advance, but my mother, who passed away a year ago at 98, near the end of her life, in that last year sometime, I was visiting and got her into the car and got the wheelchair in the car, and we went to the drugstore. She needed some prescriptions or something, and so I thought I would just go in, but she insisted that she wanted to go, and so I got her in the wheelchair and went through all that, and we went into the drugstore, and she saw these lollipops on a stand, and she really wanted one. She was appalled at the price. You know, she thought a lollipop should be five cents, and it was two dollars or something but she really wanted the lollipop so we got it and when we got back in the car she was just in a rapture with this sweet i don't know memory of her childhood or just the the actual sweetness of the of the food and it went on and on and on and she was just glowing with this moment and i thought it was a a very sweet thing because she was she was having a lot of illness and problems at that time that that she could find this window into a lightness of spirit and just pleasure she was in utter pleasure mode for quite a long time i was searching for something at some point in the process that would be that simple that i could point to and I thought, oh, I'm going to just use this thing that happened in my actual experience. Yes, it was a very powerful and clear message. So thank you for talking about this. This was sort of a pleasure point for your mom on her outing. Older people are often excluded from public life. We, you know, hide them away. Or they feel shame being out and about because they're not as agile and not as maybe present and able as younger folks. I'm wondering how you think about your own 
older age in this regard? I'm susceptible to all the feelings that many older people have. I notice very much that when I'm in a large group of people and there's some kind of ambient sound or just the chatter of the room, I don't hear very well what's being said. And so I tend to get very quiet and kind of removed and kind of cut myself off from the conversation because I'm not sure I'm understanding what's being said. And I have to remind myself in those moments that there are choices. I can leave, I can find a quiet space outside, or I can try to find one person that I can sit and engage with, or I can just be happy in my own thoughts, in my own private territory of the body. I don't have to succumb to shame or a feeling of alienation. I certainly do succumb to it sometimes, but I don't have to. Because I work with movement, I do a lot of work with the body as the home. It's our first territory. It's the first thing that we know. You know, the sweet images of babies kind of putting their toes in their mouths, which we lose that capacity as we get older. They're exploring the territory of their bodies and exploring sounds that they can make and their wails and their gurgles. And that opportunity to really embody this territory, really know it, and continue to discover it in all of its, you know, wrinkles and misfires, in all of its incompleteness. It's always going to be incomplete. There's still so much to discover, and it can be such a balm. People who suffer rheumatoid arthritis or very painful chronic conditions have discovered through some kind of pain therapy or some kind of meditation, that there is a way to be in the complexity of the moment with the pain and still discover that there's something else. And there's another way to experience it, not to make it go away, but to be with it. The body as home, it is the first home. It's a great image, really, to think about it this way. But then as we grow and grow and grow, we are exploring space with Mm -hmm. this body. As an architect, I'm always concerned with how can we enable people of different bodies and minds in the space which surrounds them, because Mm -hmm. it is this constant interaction between the body and space. And as we go, you lead people through different spaces in the performance venue at Yerba Buena. But I'm curious if you relate to space differently now, if you treat it also in your work differently. I used to think that my body was going to act upon space. Like I was going to enhance space with my movement. I was going to interact with the wall and with the chair. It was part of the performance of my action and was there for my taking I think of it quite differently now. This class that I teach Move for Humans, it's mostly on the floor. So I have to clear out my living room, and I've rearranged my life so that whatever's in the center of the living room is very light, so it can be moved, so I can find that space on the floor and teach my class through Zoom. Generally, I don't necessarily feel like my body is acting upon space in the same way. I don't enter a room and think, 
oh, I could do this with the space, which I always used to think, even if I never did it, I would imagine the great things I could hang from and balance on and slide through. <laughs> and I don't really approach space in that way anymore. I look more for ease and pathways of simplicity that are not going to require, you know, too many steps or too many points of navigation. I think that's a big difference. For me, it doesn't feel like a closing. It just feels like a new approach. I still can have, you know, pleasure in interacting with space, but it's going to be a little more gradual. It's going to be on my terms. It's going to be not to show off in the space, but to just enjoy it. In terms of the body as home, if I can use the metaphor of you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you know kind of where the wall is that you need to touch for your balance and you know where the light switch is, there's this wonderful kind of familiarity of home between my bed and the toilet, I kind of know the path. It's very familiar. I've lived here for many years. I like to think that we can navigate our bodies in the same way. Familiar territory, there's pleasure in it. The fact that I like to sit at the table and rest my elbows on it, something I've done since I was a child, feels right to me. I enjoy it. Um, that configuration of the bones works for me for whatever reason. And I feel like we all have that. We all have pathways that are familiar to us. Yes, I might have a pain in my hip, but it's my pain and the way that I navigate it, the way that I wiggle in my chair to adjust for it, or the way that I, you know, arch my lower back to relieve the pressure, it's a pleasurable pathway. It's a familiar pathway, and I don't have to hate it. I don't have to see it as mere necessity. It's also part of me. It's part of the ritual. Yes, thank you for painting this image of movement in familiar space. It's really important for many people, and I would say that familiarity is part of feeling safe. That's often then the challenge when people move into a different home or go out into a different environment where there's less familiarity. You know, there's great sensual pleasure to be had. I have a very smooth dining room table, and if it's cluttered, then I can't run my hand along it as I walk past But also running my hand along it as I walk past actually provides me with some stability and security. So simply by keeping the table clear, I've achieved a pathway to pleasure and a pathway to familiarity that can let my body relax and make life a little bit more pleasurable. In a way, the table becomes part of your body. An mm -hmm. extension of your body. Yeah. Can you say a little more about the movement for humans class you teach and how you approach it? Because I think this is a wonderful encouragement for many people to stay mobile. It's a very simple class. We start on our backs and we just very, very gentle movements of the hips and the femurs kind of swaying a little bit. And really it's just accepting that you still have some mobility at whatever level 
and that there is still pleasure to be found, and that by embracing it and understanding and accepting that it's imperfect, you're actually kind of opening up your heart to lots of experiences. It's not a dance class. We do a little like improvisation at the end where I say, move your wrists and feel like you're in water. But mostly it's just really finding the joints and gently mobilizing them so that you you feel that there is this kind of liquid sensuality, which is always there, but we mostly don't access it in our everyday lives. And there's a little bit of Buddhist philosophy thrown in along the way, <laughs> accepting that we can know the causes of suffering, but we don't have to cause more suffering, and accepting imperfection and impermanence, and trying not to do harm by such a present critical mind all the time. And I have a very critical mind. I'm sure many of us do. But my effort is to quiet it down a little bit. Every once in a while, take a break from it and just kind of notice the simple humanness in me and in all of us and not seek perfection all the time. Yes, it must be not so easy for an accomplished artist. It's not the way I was trained. Unfortunately, I was trained back in the days of very stern, you know, ballet masters. And it must look like this. And this is what turnout looks like. And if you don't do it like this, then you're a fool and you'll never amount to anything. <laughs> in a very punitive and very classic frameworks that you had to fit into. It took many, many years to undo that. And that's not the way I train people, and that's not the way I want to live my life. So it's been a very conscious process of letting that go and finding other ways to achieve beauty, even aesthetic beauty, even virtuosity can be achieved in different pathways than that. Thank you for defining virtuosity this way. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Rachel, who is one of our board members, the two of us together will read the questions. Rachel, do you want to start us off? Sure. Nice to meet you, Joe. I'm savoring all your words and realizing that we need much more time. <laughs> uh, what I wanted to just quickly respond to is how when you talked about moving your fingers along the table, your description of it reminded me of how our body has the capacity to adapt in so many wondrous ways We totally miss that often because instead of celebrating those adaptations that our body makes to keep us healthy and safe and happy, we resist them. Even someone walking past their table and running their hands along it, that helps with stability. That's a beautiful adaptation that we make mm -hmm. to adjust as we go along. So Laura Turbo asks about 
this practice of acceptance. It occurs to me that especially young people can be very critical of their bodies. Maybe we learn to accept more as we get older. Growing up as a dancer in this environment that you just talked about, how did you cultivate this idea of acceptance and befriending the body? Was there a moment of epiphany or did it evolve slowly? As I said before, it was a response to kind of punitive training, a way of seeking excellence that was really almost about hurting yourself. They were almost woven together. And it always felt wrong to me, but I didn't know any other way. I didn't know the difference. And so I took it in. I started teaching when I was very young, 20. And I think I taught that way because I didn't know any other way to do it. It was very much the bar is here, reach the bar, and don't waste your time, you know, feeling your feelings, just get to the bar. And I can't name the moment, but I knew that I probably had to stop dancing entirely or find another way. It became that clear to me. Like, I can't continue in this continuum of almost abuse of I'm teaching in this very harsh way that I learned. And so I started looking at every kind of esoteric modality that I could find. And I moved to San Francisco, perfect place to do all of that. Not so much New York. I mean, New York didn't experience any of that. It was very much about pedigree and got to be better than the person who came before you. And you've got to, you know, reach the bar. And I think those two things kind of coincided by moving to San Francisco and really deciding, hey, I don't have to dance at all. No one's demanding that I do this. I can find another way or I can just stop. And once I got to that point of kind of letting it go, I was actually able to find other things that worked. I'm wondering what impact that has on the viewer. Because I think your work is changing the way that we experience, like, who's a dancer? Who can be a dancer? Who can move their bodies? I'm imagining that when you're an audience and you're watching people dance who've been trained in that notion of perfectionism, that that somehow comes through. But if you're watching one of your productions, then maybe the messages that seep through are also that anybody can be a dancer. I hope so, because I really believe that. I really believe that we're all dancers. Whether you're ever on a stage or have any desire to be on a stage, to do the dance that your body knows how to do is just such an innate part of being alive. It's really important, and I wouldn't want anyone to deprive themselves of that. And if looking at my dancers can give people some tiny little speck of, oh, yeah, I could be a dancer, then great. I'm very happy about that. I have to say, though, our work is not done. I was recently interviewed by someone I won't name, but their first comment was basically, why do my dancers not look like dancers? And I was like, they, they look like dancers to me. They're absolutely dancers, and they're beautiful, you know, but that was their question, and they wouldn't let it go. And I was like, wow, this is a very firm <laughs> mindset that people are in about dance. It's the thing about dance that actually makes me a little queasy, I have to say. I've gotten to the point where I can't look at the racehorses anymore, the, like, super 
attenuated dance machines. I just see the strife. It's hard for me to see the pleasure. Every once in a while, you'll see someone who can embody both. But a lot of times I just feel like, ooh, it hurts me to watch you. Even though you're beautiful, what mm-hmm. you're doing is magnificent. There's no real pleasure in it somehow. When I was researching your work, I think I either read or thought that one of the missions of your work is to create compassion and empathy and tolerance. Yeah. Absolutely. And Susie said, my dancers are different ages. I have a couple of dancers in their 50s, which in dancer years, like dog years, like they're 150. (laughs) um, They're still dancing quite fully and quite beautifully. But I find great pleasure in that wisdom that they have in their bodies and the way that they can arrive at something without needing to convince anybody that they've muscles to get there. It's really pleasurable for me to see that. The question from Judith Sachs, I think it relates to what you just said before. Judith says, I know you, like me, work with the Parkinson's community. Do you feel that encouraging them to be and feel bigger and stronger makes you feel bigger and stronger? For me, at 76, I have actually not felt as good in my body in years. Bigger and stronger, they're not words that I use too much. I would say juicier and fuller and more liquid and more luscious. (laughs) Those would be my words. And that can equate to bigger and stronger pretty quickly, but those are probably not the words I would use. Yes, thank you. Another question, do you think dancers are less afraid of death? The immersive trance within the dancing experience made me less afraid of dying and letting go of my body. At 64, even the memory of full-out dancing is enough to quell my anxiety. I remember that I am the dance and not just the human dancer. I love all of that. That's beautiful. I wish I could say that dancers writ large were less afraid of death. I don't know that I can say that. I think we're a very heterogeneous kind of species. <laughs> there are all kinds of dancers. Some of us are terribly neurotic and worried about everything, and some of us aren't. I do think that movement or dance can be used as a tool to allay some of that fear for absolute sure. And the rapture that this person is talking about, the feeling of being lost in kinetic action is real. It's real. When we were kids, I mean, we all would spin in the front yard, you know. In Virginia, we said when there was a hurricane coming, for some reason, the wind would be all agitated and we'd go out in the front yard and just spin. Well, maybe that's some idiosyncrasy of my particular family, but um, there was this feeling of, oh my God, I'm lost. I'm in a trance. I'm completely free in my body. I think that that freedom, even just the taste of it, a memory of it, even just having it in your finger can actually be a wonderful healing property. Well, it's sort of the freedom to play, no? Yeah, yeah. And the freedom to move, the freedom to move in an unencumbered way 
moving for humans, we do a lot with our eyes closed. It's like, I'm moving not for you, I'm moving for me. I'm moving for the experience of it, not to accomplish a way of looking or a way of impressing anyone. That is a very powerful, powerful tool. In terms of the fragility of bodies, Adrian asks, as someone who teaches, performs, etc., do you fear injury, pulled muscles, broken bones? Yes, I've had all of those, and of course I fear them. But I have to say that the biggest injuries that I've had have been the most learning periods of time for me of ways to come back into the body, ways to understand the body, ways to empathize with the body and give it some space to heal. Those have been very, very productive times for me, actually. I had knee surgery in 1985. I was at the peak of my dancing career. Well, maybe a little beyond the peak, but I was still in my dancing career. And I had knee surgery. I would bend my knee, but then I couldn't straighten it. It would get locked. It was a meniscus tear. And I thought, oh, my life is over. My livelihood is over. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm completely lost. And I did a lot of very interesting esoteric therapy, but I ultimately needed surgery. The whole process was probably about a year. I think it's the year that I learned the most about my body. I adapted to it, and I found ways to think about it that were totally different. Even just standing or walking or moving laterally, which for some reason caused me a lot of pain. And I was like, oh, I can find another way to do that. I can find pathways that I didn't know I had. I look back on it now as a very happy accident in a certain way. There been lots of other injuries too, back injuries. Movement for Humans is very much inspired by chronic kind of back issues and has helped me enormously to not succumb to them again. So, yeah, I have had injuries. I mean, of course, I fear injury a little bit, but I'm also pretty careful. You don't see me doing the acrobatics that I once loved. It's not where I am anymore. It's not where my body wants to be, and it's okay. I'm actually okay with it. So maybe what you just said is also a response to Carol Agan's question or statement who said, I think the pain factor plays a large part in how one relates to aging and facing death. Chronic pain for many people is part of their aging experience. Yes, and it's also a great teacher. You know, I mean, I feel like a life without pain is not a life. And yes, we get a heavier dosage of it as we get older, and we have to sit with that. You can't just push it away. We all know that doesn't work or try to numb it or try to ignore it or try to deny it. It will not be denied. <laughs> so what's the other option? And the other option is some form of acceptance and even, I would say, befriending it, letting it sit down with you and understanding it and knowing it and working with it, working with your pain because What other choice do we have, really? That's real. Yes. Let me just read one more statement here from Susan. As a child, I loved my tap and modern dance classes. Then I went to school, college, graduate school, and then 40 years of living in my head for work. 
I ignored my body. Now at 66 and recently retired, I find that I want to buy tap shoes and blast joyful music and play. I feel now that I'm finally aware of my body versus my mind. Fantastic. I love it. I feel like there's so many versions of that belly dancing or hip hop. And it's not like you have to be a professional. You don't even have to take a tap class to enjoy the sound of your shoes on the floor. It's the pleasure in the body of knowing that movement and animation and breath and mobility gives me pleasure. It makes me happy. It it brings the child back. If you can still access that, I say, oh, yes, please. It's the lollipop. It is the lollipop. <laughs> I agree. I have been thinking about this quite a bit. So, Joe, before we conclude this lovely conversation, is there anything you want to say as a last message to everybody? Maybe if you allow me, I'm just going to do a little somatic exercise. And somatic to me means when you ask the body and the mind to participate together in something. So I'm just going to ask you to place your right hand over your sternum, wherever you think that is, and then your left hand over your right hand. And if you can't access that because of some mobility issue, then do what you can wherever you can bring your hands together. And as you maybe feel the rise and fall of your breath, imagine that your, your sternum, that part of your body that you're touching, is coming up to meet your hands, that your hands are holding you, but you're also meeting your hands with your body. And that in that simple, simple action, and I'm not really moving at all, I'm just kind of breathing into the palm of my hand, I'm, I'm awake, I'm alive, I can feel my lungs moving. I can feel my electricity that's coursing through my body. And there is simple pleasure in that. And one more breath. And I want to thank you all for coming. My goodness, I was so lovely. Thank you, Susie, for having me. Thank you, Joe, for this lovely send-off. And thank you again for your work. And I'm looking forward to your next production. We will take a short break with our programming over the holidays, and we'll see you back in 2024. Please tell others about our work and share our podcast and programs. Thank you all. Thank you, Susie. Thank you, Joe. It was a real pleasure. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home with Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. 
Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.